Thank you for listening to a sermon from the District Church. For more information about us, please visit www.thedistrict.church. Additionally, if any of our sermons have brought encouragement to you, would you please let us know by emailing us at info at Good morning, everyone. My name is Dwayne, and one of the pastors here at the District. And just again, I want to say thank you for worshiping with us this morning, just gathering together. It's, it's always a joy just for, for my soul, for us to, to just sing and, and just hear the song of others praising God. Um, I just love that. It, it always just fills up and stirs up my affections for Jesus. And so thank you for uh, participating as the body of Christ this morning in that. Um, if you have your Bibles, uh, go ahead and open them up, turn them on, whatever that is. Uh, to Colossians chapter 3. We're going to be in, in verses 5 through 11 today. Colossians chapter 3, verses 5 through 11. And for those who have maybe missed a couple of weeks, just to kind of catch you up real quick, uh, we turned kind of the, the corner last week in, in beginning the second half of our series in Colossians. And I really kind of laid the foundation for, for a principle that Scripture uses, and specifically the Apostle Paul that he uses in his letters and the way that he writes is this idea of an indicative and an imperative. What we mean by that is the indicative is always, this is what God has done. This is the work that God is accomplishing. This is what he's doing in and among the people. This is all God, and we are the passive agents of that. We are the ones who are sitting, receiving all that God has done. And so Paul, in a lot of his writings, always kind of begins with, this is who God is, this is what God has done, and this is why we are thankful for God in what He is doing in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And then that always leads to the imperative, which is because of what God has done, there's now some com- commands, there's now some uh, ways in which we are going to entreat of you to do something or to practice something or to live your life in such a way that is changed and transformed because of the indicative, because of what God has done. Um, it, it, for example, like the scripture, we love because he first loved us. We are not able to love with the grace of God be, without having the grace of God first affect us and come in and live among us. And so that's kind of the way he's worked this out because this second half of Colossians is going to be filled with uh, practical steps to live out righteousness. Practical ways to, as we'll see today, put to death sin within us next week to put on uh, Christ and to put on the new heart that is within us uh, to then live out from there what it looks like in the church and the home, what it looks like to live in the workforce, what it looks like in raising children. All of these are going to be practical implications and, and, and really just ways to live life, kind of the lifestyle or design that God has created for us to walk in but we can never walk in it if we don't first understand the foundation. We can never get there without having, having the indicative to begin with. And one of the things that I also mentioned last week was it's important to always have both of those in front of you at all times because if you just have the indicative and you never get to the imperative, essentially what you have is faith without works. And what we know in James is faith without works is dead. So if we're only ever talking about what God has done, and we never get to the implications of how that actually changes the way that I live my life, then we've never really understood and have received what God has done. Because it will change you and transform you to live it out in works. So faith and works 
go hand in hand with one another. Now, to go the other side of it and only focus on the imperatives and never talk about the indicatives, then leads to works without faith. And we know as well that that, when you look at Galatians, as we'll also look at today as well a little bit, you're going to see that that also is dead. That also does not work. That also leads to destruction and leads to anxiety and leads to all kinds of things within your life that are never going to measure up to the righteousness that you think you're attaining by your works if you don't have the faith that also brings you to your righteousness or provides the righteousness for you. So we have to have both faith and works working themselves out in our daily lives. And that's what he's starting to shift to is he's been talking about all the things that has produced for us faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ. That's why we're labeling this the preeminence of Christ. It all hinges on Him. He is the cornerstone by which the church is being built, and the church is ultimately being built by the faith that is in Christ and Christ alone. We live by grace in Him according to faith. And so that is the foundation that then leads into what we're going to be looking at today. And also, kind of the way that we shifted and started the second half last week, Again, it was not based on anything that is go and do this. But it was, again, a shift of perspective, a shift of mind. Colossians 3, 1 through 4, we saw the, the shift of his perspective from, instead of earthly things, set your minds on Christ. Set your minds on things that are above, things that are heavenly, where Christ is seated at. And so for us, it's this shift in perspective that even when we go to the implications, when we go to the applications, we are to keep our minds on Christ throughout the whole process. Because if we take our minds away from Christ and we start living out the, the practical aspects of putting our sin to death, it's very easy. I mean, just one step for us to start putting faith in works rather than faith in Christ alone. So even starting it out, the work to be done is to just consider our minds on Christ. And to always have our minds there. Because when our minds are on Christ, that is what ultimately inflames our hearts, which leads to our motives being able to be shifted so that now our motives, which are to love Christ and to hate sin, can actually begin to function when it comes to putting sin to death within our lives. And so that's just kind of a quick, quickly get you caught up to where we're at. And I'm going to start off by reading verse 5 and uh, through 11. And then we'll dive into it here. Starting in verse 5. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them. But now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices, and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. So in doing some research on this passage this week, there's, there's a lot of sermons that, that are 
in a lot of variety around this passage. There are a lot of sermons that are specifically dealing with each of the sins listed. And as I kind of summed up last week, you can put one category of lust and you can put the other category of, of hatred or anger. Um, and, and kind of each of the ones in those categories fall within these lists that are listed out here. And so some sermons just focus on specifically, let's talk about sexual impurity. Let's talk about evil desire. Let's talk about covetousness. Let's talk about anger and wrath and malice and slander. And, and that's not necessarily where we're going to go today in dealing with each of those specifically. Other sermons that I saw uh, this week in dealing with this passage are really some sermons that are hitting kind of hot topics in our culture right now, specifically the fact that this passage is 100% anti-racist. And you can see that in verse 11 here. And when he says here, he's referring to the new self that is being put on. And so for each of us as believers, having the new self put on, which is Christ, us living in the identity of Christ, and Christ not only changing and transforming you, but creating a new people, a new community, a new uh, people of God that the rest of the world is going to see. And as they see it, they're able to see that, hey, there's something different about this people of God than what I've been following after. Essentially, they are not living or finding satisfaction in the things of this earth, but rather are finding satisfaction in something else. And so we are to be a model or an image of God as creator for the creatures who have been created in his image. And for everyone else who is created in his image, but are broken and fractured because of sin, the people of God, the new community of God, the faith, the body of Christ, are putting on display. This is what the fruit of the Spirit is, not the fruit of the world around us. And so this community, there is not Greek and Jew. There is not circumcised and uncircumcised. There is not barbarian or Scythian or slave or free. But Christ is all and in all. And now that is not to say that in this new community, this new church, this new people, that there is not Jew or Greek. We actually know from the Scriptures that there is both Jew and Greek. The majority of the arguments that are found within the New Testament have to do with this idea of having both Jew and Greek coming into this new people. And so what he's getting at here is it's not to cancel the cultures of either one of them, but rather to say that they are to now come in together as the people of God, honoring one another within their cultures and not having hatred towards one another despite, uh, regarding their cultures. And so this is, the, this is the new people, the new church that is being seen here. Again, that's the mini-sermon within those sermons that we have seen regarding this. And I've seen a lot of uh, pastors preach on that regarding racism. But for us today, I think the thing that's going to best serve us is this conundrum that we find ourselves in, according to verse 5, is that there is this sin which is earthly still in you. And then as we also see in verse 7, you too once walked or we're also living in it. So we have this kind of conundrum of there's this sin that is present tense in you, but then we also have in verse 7, there's this sin that you once lived in, past tense, or were living in, past tense. And so how do we deal with, as believers in Christ, sin that is present tense, still living within us, 
while at the same time knowing that as Christians, we no longer belong to that anymore. We are no longer identified as sinners anymore. And so this is where we kind of get into this idea of what Martin Luther calls um, simultaneously sinners and saints. Simultaneously sinners and saints. And how we war with this on a daily basis. Because I think it's absolutely imperative for us to understand the relationship between us continuing to be sinners and us at the same time being saints. Because when we understand foundationally which one is in power and which one holds no power actually allows us to begin fighting the sin that we deal with on a daily basis. Because if I were to ask you right now, how many people in this room deal with sin on a daily basis? We should have 100% hands raised in the air. And if you don't raise your hand in the air, you just sin because you're lying. So we're, we're all walking through this on a daily basis. I continue, as Paul says, the things that I want to do, I don't do. The things that I hate, I continue to do because there's sin warring with him inside of him. But at the same time, He's able to say, we're saints. We're holy and beloved, as it says down in verse uh, 12. God's chosen ones who are holy and beloved. If you remember the beginning of this letter, Paul refers to them, the chosen ones, as saints. Which again, saints means literally holy ones. So how can we be sinners and saints? And what do we do regarding that? And for me, honestly, I think it's both relief and heartache to know that all true believers have sin remaining in them in this life. I think, it's, I think it's relief and heartache. I think it's relief because it helps you understand why you continue to sin. I think it's heartache because we know that there's still going to be sin within us that we need to deal with. And we're going to be dealing with until glory. But we need to know it. We need to understand it. We need to figure out how to fight against it. The Apostle Paul said in Philippians 3.12, referring to righteousness, not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus had made me His own. In Romans 7.23, he says this, I see in my members, he's referring to just his body, my members, another law that is waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Again, setting your minds on Christ, having the law of Christ, having His identity ruling and reigning within your mind is what we mean when we say setting our minds on Christ. But knowing that as we are setting our minds on Christ, we still have the law of sin within our members that's waging war against the law that is within our mind. You can see how this just gets frustrating within us every single day. So that Jesus even tells us in Matthew 6.12, daily, Ask for forgiveness of your sins. As we begin to understand biblically that yes, we are saints with remaining sin in us, this does not mean we should become complacent about sin. It means we fight it daily. And we must. We're commanded to constantly kill the sin that remains in our lives. Listen to what he says in Romans 8, 13. If you live according to the flesh, that is the body. That is the members within you. If you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. As we see here in Colossians 3, 5, it's exactly what he's telling us to do. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly 
in you. This is not optional. This is mortal combat, not the game, what's literally going on in your life right now. This is mortal combat within us. Sin dies or we die. Now, not that we ever become perfect in this age, but we must go on killing sins as they attack us from day to day. We never, never settle in with sin because we're a saint. Never settle in with sin because we are a saint. We fight and we kill because that is who we are now. We are no longer sin worshipers that kill us, but we are sin killers that leads to life and worship. That's what we must do. Now, before I give you some very practical steps for killing sin, I actually do want to look at anger real quick. Um, this is not to lessen the, the kind of beast of lust that is going on. A few sermons ago, I did cover a little bit of, of lust and, and how we must deal with that and handle that. Um, but I've not dealt much with anger, and so I want to address it briefly here before I get to the practical steps. There is sinful anger and there is holy anger. And sometimes it's hard to decipher the difference between the two. There's sinful anger and there's holy anger. To kind of help you with the sinful side, sinful anger is an expression of the fact that I am not pleased with what is going on right now with you. Not with me, with you. Sinful anger is an expression of the fact that I am not pleased with what is going on right now with you. And the sad truth is that our cultures and our societies have been trying to normalize this type of anger for centuries, for millennia. I mean, even now, you can see that. You saw that the other night in a debate. It's normalizing this idea that it's, that it's holy to be angry and, and, and in some ways is seen as, as the moral high road in this sense of life, like right now. Like if you're not angry about anything, well then you don't care about anything. And so we're, we're literally kind of pitting ourselves against one another in every facet of life right now. And the only way in which people are responding is by anger. I mean, the, 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 and this isn't to refer to the debate the other night, but this is to refer to just the art of debating and the art of, of disagreement and the art of argument does not exist in our culture in this moment because everything's cancel it. If you disagree with me on a political issue, we can't be friends. If you disagree with me on a religious issue, we can't be friends. Go to another church. If you disagree with me on fill in the blank, we cannot commune with one another because we disagree. And so this, this idea of anger has become for us kind of the tipping point in which once we get there, it will actually allow us to see everything with clarity. If we're not angry about it, how do we know we're passionate about it? That's what our culture has told us at this point. Does it not outrage you that so-and-so did this? but yet that's how we're trained to think. And really, I mean, this dates back to Greek mythology, for example. I mean, it's just this, this idea of whether it's a Zeus or a Thor or fill in the blank. Like, if people are doing what you don't like and it creates in you anger, all you got to do is just throw a lightning bolt at them and, and get rid of them, annihilate them. 
And this is what we've kind of attached to the Bible by inserting it into this example or this metaphor is we see ourselves as kingdom builders and if anybody comes to us in a disagreement of us building Christ's kingdom and advancing His kingdom, then we're going to weld the, the lightning bolts and destroy them and get them out in whatever way it's going to look like. We're going to cancel them. We're not going to associate with them. We're not going to commune with them. We're not going to have conversations with them. We're not going to get coffee with them. We're not going to go have lunch with them. We're not going to invite them into our homes. We're going to create a subculture of Christianity so that we can show the rest of them that we've won. So the Bible has kind of these absolutely unmistakable, heart-searching, pride-devastating analyses of sinful anger. And one of the ones that I found most convicting, and then from conviction, the most nourishing, is in James 4.12, where James says, and again, this is in the context of anger, interpersonal conflict, all kinds of just fussing and fighting and quarreling among the church. He says this, There's only one lawgiver and judge. He who is able to save and to destroy. Who are you that you judge your neighbor or that you speak against your brother? And this is one of those verses that just peels away kind of the front story and gets to the back story behind anger. Like seeing that inner core of anger is tremendously helpful in one's sanctification. And here's what it is. It reminds me of kind of a typical, whether it's a parent, child, husband, wife, interpersonal conflict. Picture this with me. You've got two books, all right? Just got a, a big book here and another big book here. And there's a conflict in the middle, and you're just taking these two books, and you're just nailing them together and just hitting them one after another, trying to figure out how to solve this conflict. And what we're ultimately saying is when we're trying to solve the conflict, we're opening our book, and what we're trying to communicate to the other person is what's wrong in this situation is you. That's what this book is telling the story of. And then this book's opening it up as it's trying to solve this conflict, and it's saying what's wrong in this scenario is you. I mean, if we, this is going back to Genesis 3. What did Adam and Eve do when God shows up in the garden after they've sinned, and He says, what did you do? Adam, the woman you gave me, he's opened up his book. The problem that we have here is her. And what does she do? It's the serpent. The problem's not me, it's outside. So both of them are saying that the problem is outside of themselves. And honestly, that's what our culture is telling us as well. The problem is not us. The problem is fill in the blank, your enemy those on the other side, those on the left, those on the right. Those churches that disagree with you, those churches that are like you but practice it in a different way. Your work, your boss, your coworker, your neighbor. Like it's, it's all of those who are outside are the problem with society. And it's right for you to judge. That's what our culture's training us to do. That's what our culture's discipling us to do right now. Even if the other person is not doing right, and in fact is doing wrong, sinful anger is an expression of you playing God according to James 4.12. That's what we're doing. We're putting on the hat of lawgiver, and in a lot of ways, defining what our law is. 
And when they're not upholding our law, we're then playing judge. That's what leads to or dwells up sinful anger within us. That inner core of anger is something that none of these self-help books at Barnes & Noble or on Amazon is going to tell you. None of them is going to tell you that the issue is you. Not one of them. The issue's outside of you. And since these things are from a biblical point of view, it's utterly obvious and just sanity-inducing to be able to see that the covers of the human heart are peeled away, and it's us that is the problem. The book's open. And when the book is open, and I'm seeing it from a biblical perspective, when he's asking me these questions, who are you that you are trying to play God? That you are trying to be a lawgiver and judge? When I'm able to ask these questions and I have my heart opened up, I'm able to look at this and I'm able to ask kind of in my soul, like, why am I so embittered? Why is there that kind of cutting, sarcastic edge in my voice? Why am I raising my voice and there's a tone of real disdain or disgust towards the person that I'm angry at? Like, why am I there? And as you really open the book the way God opens it, you see yourself. That there's pride. That there's a God playing, a passion for my will be done that has taken over the controls of my life. The godly anger is one of those things that is just an inch away and yet is 10 million miles away. One example I think, um, I like to think about is that both Satan and Jesus point out our sins and express anger. Did you realize that? Like both Satan and Jesus, they point out our sins and they express anger. Satan expresses anger driven by pride and self-will and condemnation unto his own purposes. Christ expresses a holy anger unto God's glory, which is an anger that has chosen to bear the wrath himself. And so they're both pointing out what is wrong, but one voice is pointing out what is wrong the right way. See, the log is not in Jesus' eye when he is looking at our specks. Both have to do with right and wrong. Now, righteous anger typically sees right and wrong more clearly, but you can actually see what is right, or you can actually see what is wrong and still be sinfully angry. It's a different issue. Seeing what is wrong is your circumstance that is coming at you. And the choice of whether your anger will either be fundamentally godly or fundamentally or godless or fundamentally laced with mercy is really how this all hinges. Being able to see the circumstance that is coming at you that makes you angry whether or not you exercise in that moment fundamental godlessness or a godliness that's laced with mercy and compassion and grace determines whether or not it's a sinful anger or a holy anger. Now, knowing that we need to put that to death and that we also need to put lust to death, and that these things are kind of culminating in what we just refer to as the members of our flesh. 
our old self. I've got, and I'm going to go through these quickly because I know I'm about to give you a big list. I've got 13 points um, for why or how we kill sin. And again, I promise I'm going to go through these quick. How do we kill sin? Number one, take heart from the truth that the old sinful you is decisively already dead. It's already dead. The old identity by which you sin emerged is now dead. By faith, we're united to Christ so that his death was our death. That's why we talked about baptism a few weeks ago. We are buried with Christ in baptism. We are buried. Our old self, that is the identity that produces the sin within our lives, is put to death. We are dead with Christ and raised to walk in a newness of life that we'll get to next week when we put on the new self. So this means three things. The moral blow to our old man has been struck. The old self will not succeed in domination now, and his final final obliteration is certain. So there's assurance that we can have that the sin that still earthly remains in us has no power because it's already dead. It's there, but it's dead. And so we just finish burying it. This is essentially what we're talking about today. Number two, consciously acknowledge that the old self is dead. So the one is taking heart, just being encouraged that the old self is dead. Number two is reminding yourself that the old self is dead. That is, believe the truth of Scripture about the old man's death is Christ and seek to live in that freedom. Living out the reality that you are is the proof that you are. Living out the reality that the old self is dead and that you have a new self proves that you have a new self. One clear illustration of becoming what you are is found in 1 Corinthians 5.7. He says this, Cleanse out the old leaven but you may, so that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. It's, it's a strange verse. Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. So he's saying there's no leaven in you, so clean out the leaven that's in you. There's no sin in you, so clean out the sin that's in you. That's, it, it makes no sense in our logic. But this is exactly what he's explaining. He, we are the already, not yet. You are already righteous. You are already a saint. You are already accepted by God because of the work of Jesus Christ. When he looks at you, he says, this is my beloved son or daughter in whom I'm well pleased. He said that of Jesus when Jesus was being baptized before Jesus did any work yet. I'm already well pleased with you. He's saying the same thing of us when we are baptized with Christ and raised to walk in the newness of life. This is my son and daughter in whom I'm well pleased. When he saved you, you were at your worst. And being at your worst, he then bestows upon you righteousness where he then says, I love you and I cannot love you any more than I love you right now. Because I see you as perfect. You're righteous. Now get rid of the sin that's in you. This is what he's explaining to us. Number three, cultivate enmity with sin. Here's what I mean by that. 
You don't kill friends. You kill enemies. You don't kill friends, you kill enemies. If sin is a friend of you, you're not going to kill it. You're not going to kill it. And so what we have to do in this is, again, it's a work of our mind here. We have to ponder how sin has killed our best friend, Jesus. How sin dishonors our Father. How sin aims to destroy you and your friends and your family and everything that you stand for. It's it's trying to destroy you. And what we need to do is develop more hatred for sin. And the only way that we develop more hatred for sin is by developing more treasure of Jesus. The more you treasure Jesus, the more you should hate sin. And this will grow as we mature in our sanctification. Because in our sanctification, we become more like Christ, we see Christ, we treasure Christ. And the more that we treasure Christ, we begin to love the things that Christ loves and we begin to hate the things that Christ hates. So for us, as individuals, that means in our lives, if we are growing more in love with the sin that is within our members, it might be revealing to us that our old self is not actually dead. And that maybe we're not in Christ. We must be evangelized and we must come to know Christ as Savior. So for us as believers, one of the mark of believers is daily growing in our affections of Jesus and in our hatred of the sin that stands against Him. Number four, as your hatred grows, rebel against sin's coup. Refuse to be bullied by its deceits and manipulations. Listen to Romans 6.12. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Like that's all sin is trying to do is it's trying to take back power that it has lost so that it can reign in your mortal body to make you do the things you don't want to do. This is exactly what Paul was warring with. Like the things that I don't want to do, I continue to do. He's, he's battling within his body, whether it was his mouth or whether it was his eyes or whether it was his hand. Like he's, he's wanting to do sins, even though he knows he hates those things. And so he's having this internal battle of, I need to put it to death so that it does not hold me captive anymore. Or take me back captive is actually the language of the Greek there. We know that it can't because of Christ in us. Temptations to sin are all half-truths or half-lies at best. And Paul calls their fruit literally lusts of deceit in Ephesians 4.22. So rebel against the sin that's attempting to reign in you. Stop saying, sin made me do it. For those in Christ, that's not true anymore. Sin has no power over you anymore. Therefore, you're free. You're free to rebel against sin and run with Christ in righteousness and holiness. That's the freedom that we have in our Christian walk today is to say no, and not only to just say no to sin, but to put it to death, to kill it. So it's not this like vending machine in the morning where you're like, you know, sin's presenting to you some options, but then Christ is presenting you some options and you're waiting to make a selection. And you're just going to kind of see how you feel for that day. You know, I'm down today, and so I could really use some immediate gratifications, and so let me just choose sin and enjoy that for a few moments. And Christ, I'll apologize later and kind of get to you whenever I get to you. Unfortunately, that's how a lot of Christians live. 
true. That's how a lot of Christians live. And at the end of the day, what they're revealing in their hearts is that they've surrounded themselves in some way by a culture of Christianity, but they're actually not partaking of it. They're still loving and desiring the empty gratification. And they're missing the eternal satisfaction of Christ. Number five, declare radical allegiance to the other side. God. And consciously put all your mind, heart, and body at His disposal for righteousness and purity. This is what he says in Romans 6.13. Present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. So what used to be used as an instrument for sin is now being used as an instrument for righteousness. And honestly, I think again, kind of going back to the idea of anger right now, this this for us is, is right now our mouth and our tongue. Our mouth and our tongue is so being used as an instrument of sin to destroy others rather than being used as an instrument of righteousness to exhort and entreat others to come to Christ and to know Him and to be found blameless in Him. So for us, we need to present these things. I mean, he's, he's actively telling us, present yourselves. Again, verse 13 is right after verse 12. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. So it's an activity that we must partake in and participate in and actively engage in where in the morning when we wake up, we are presenting ourselves. Hey Lord, there's... Stand within my members. I know that. I'm warring and waging war against that right now. May I present my members to you today. My mouth, my tongue, my speech, my conduct, the way I serve. May I present these ways to you in your righteousness rather than in gratifying the sinfulness of my flesh. We've got to actively, consciously develop this. Number six, don't make any plans that open the door for sin's entry. I love what Romans 13, 14 says on this. Make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Make no provision for the flesh. You don't know what provision is? Make no resources for the flesh. Make no avenues. Make no doorways. Don't give sin a foot in any way whatsoever to be able to rear its ugly head within the members of your body. Here's one great example. Dealing with lust. Don't prove your sexual purity by walking into a strip club. I am sexually pure. I'm going to walk into this strip club and I am not going to sin. Make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Don't give sin an entry by opening a door. Number seven, know the cultural shifts of the current age and consciously resist conformity to it. This is a Romans 12.2. Do not be conformed to this world. Do not be conformed to what the culture is saying is going to gratify us. Again, put to death what is earthly in you. Where does culture come from in a lot of ways? Yes, culture can be a a God construct. It's, It's out of creation. But culture is also broken and fractured due to sin. And therefore, it is also 
preaching and proclaiming a message that is going to be for instant gratification of sinners rather than eternal satisfaction of believers. And so culture that is contrary to Christ, we have to look at it and not be conformed by it. We have to actively, so much, have our minds set on Christ and our minds in the Word of God that is informing the new culture and the new society that is within Christianity that is actually leading to the flourishment of society. We have to have our minds so ingrained in that that when culture provides anything contrary to that, we're able to snuff it out and be able to speak against it regarding whatever it might be. Regarding whatever it might be. Know the cultural shifts and resist conforming to them. As D.L. Moody says, the ship belongs in the water of the world, but if the water gets in the ship, it sinks. Number eight, develop mental habits that continually renew the mind in God-centeredness. Again, you can kind of see each of these are playing off of one another. Fix attention daily on, as Romans 8, 5 says, the things of the Spirit. As Colossians 3, 2 says, the things that are above. As Philippians 4, 8 says, let your mind dwell on whatever is true and honorable and just and pure and lovely and gracious and excellent and worthy of praise. Fix your mind there. Put your eyes there. And, and this is not, this is not, go outside and look up into the sky. This is not, go to the mountains and look at them. This is not, go to the ocean and just behold its wonderful glory. Those things do stir up affections for God as Creator. Those things do not inform us on how to battle sin. Where we battle sin is in the Word of God. Fix your minds there. We can't have ethereal Christianity where when we behold creation, we hope that it molds us into Christ. We have to get to the Word, Logos, John 1.1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God. As we see in verse 14, the Word became flesh. we got to get to that Word that transforms and changes us. We've got to dwell on that and fix our minds on that so that that actually gives us a fighting chance against the sin that dwells within us. Develop mental habits that continually renew the mind in God-centeredness. Number nine, admit failure and confess all known sin every single day. I love this in 1 John 1, 9, where he just tells us constantly, ask God for forgiveness. You confess your sins, he's faithful and just to forgive you of your sins and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Daily, ask him for forgiveness. Jesus commanded that of us in Matthew 6.12. Why? Because again, put to death what is earthly in you. The way we put to death what is earthly in us is by asking forgiveness of the earthliness that is in us. Why? Because who put it to death? When he says put to death what is earthly in you, someone's already put it to death. So by us asking forgiveness from the one who's already put it to death guarantees that He will then forgive us of that because He's faithful and just. 
And the reason why he's faithful and just is because, one, he never lies. Therefore, he's always faithful. He's always constant. What he says, he will do. He can swear by no one else other than himself. And so when God says, I will forgive you, he's saying, I swear by me that I will forgive you. And it says that he's just to forgive you of your sins. That doesn't mean that he's sweeping your sins under the rug in which they're then able to kind of come back out whenever you move the rug. He's just. If that were the case, he would cease to be God if he was sweeping it under the rug. But because he's just, that means he's dealt with it in a way in which he's put sin and its implications and its penalty ultimately to death and then rose Jesus conquering it so that when he then applies that work to a sinner's life and removes the sin from them and forgives them of those sins, he remains just because the judge has already declared that sin paid for by the penalty of Jesus Christ. We call that in theological terms, substitutionary atonement. He's replaced us. And Jesus has rightfully paid the penalty. And therefore, by Him forgiving us, He remains holy and good and righteous. And so for us, that honestly should be one of the greatest refreshing verses that we can ever read. Is that when we confess our sins to Him. And that's why we have, I mean, when we launched this church a couple of years ago, we, we launched with confession as a part of our service. We had a lot of questions. Why do we confess sins? We're, we're, we're saints. We're forgiven of sins. Once and for all, past, pre, past, present, and future, all sins are forgiven. Why do we continue to forget, or ask for forgiveness of sins? It's because of exactly what we're talking about today. There's still sin that is earthly dwelling within you that He commands us in 1 John 1.9 to confess daily for forgiveness of. And then knowing that with assurance, because we are already saints, that He's faithful and just to forgive us of those sins and to cleanse us. Kind of going back to that idea of the leavened bread. You're already unleavened, but I still need to cleanse you of the sin that still dwells within you. Number 10, ask for the Spirit's help and power in all these things. This is great. It's not your work to be done. Ask for the Spirit's help in this. As he says in Romans 8.13, By the Spirit put to death the deeds of the body. All that is good in us is a fruit of the Spirit, as we see in Galatians 5.22. As we see in Ezekiel 36.27 and Isaiah 26.12, He causes us to walk as we should. So all we have to do is simply petition every day from the Lord, Lord, by Your Spirit, help me fight the sin in my members today in my body that's waging war against the Spirit of Christ within me. By your Spirit, help me. Help me. Number 11, be part of a larger and a smaller community where you are exhorted often to beware of the deceitfulness of sin. Listen to Hebrews 3.13. This is fascinating. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Speaking to the saints, the corporate body of Christ, he's telling them to exhort one another every single day, as long as it is called today, 
that none of them may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. How often should I belong to my community of faith? Well, if it's just Sundays and community group, then it's still not enough, according to Hebrews 13. It's not enough just to participate in the body of Christ on Sundays and in community group. Should I check in on my brother or sister? If you're asking, like, like ask yourself that question every single day. Should I check on my brother or sister? And then just be reminded by Hebrews 3.13 here. Is it today? All right. Then I should check on my brother or sister. Because as long as it is today, I need to make sure that I exhort them. And what I mean by exhort them is encouraging them in the Word of God to put that sin to death and to walk in the newness of life. Number 12, fight your sinful impulses with all your might of Christ in you as a boxer fights an opponent and as a marathon runner fights fatigue. 2 Timothy 4.7 says, I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. Guess what? It's going to hurt, and it's going to be exhausting, fighting sin. It's just true. It's going to hurt, and it's going to be exhausting, fighting sin. But he tells us, because of Christ in us, fight the good fight. Run the race. Finish well. Verse 13. Verse 13. Point 13. These are not thus says the Lord, all right? Point 13. Beware of works of the law. And that's an interesting one to kind of end with here, but listen to what Paul said to the foolish Galatians who actually believed that they were accomplishing God's work in them by works of the law, by their own power, by their own religiosity. He says this in Galatians 3.2. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? And these are just rhetorical questions that he's asking them. He already knows the answer. Galatians 3.5 Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? We have to let our sin or our fight against sin spring from our confidence in the superior pleasures of all God's promises for us in Christ. Like, that's where it lands. Is that what he says in 2 Thessalonians 1, 11-12, to this end, we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of His calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by His power so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in Him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Is there any part of that where he is saying, man, we thank God for your ability to conquer the sin that is within you. We thank God that you are so cunning that you were able to out-deceive the deceitfulness of sin. And we thank God that you are so wise and smart with what you've learned and what you've gathered and what you've done with your resources that you were able to outpower sin that is among you. No, that's not what he says. We always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling. 
and that he may fulfill every resolve. And if you don't know what a resolve is, that means there's a problem and he's fixing it. That he may fulfill every problem that is within you for good and every work of faith by his power. His power. So that, and this is what leads to the ultimate satisfaction for us, so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in and us be glorified in Him according to His grace. As we know, ultimately, from just Christianity, grace is a gift. It's a gift to those who don't deserve it. If we had anything that we were able to bring to the table to fight sin ourselves, there would be no need for the gift of grace. We could just attain it ourselves. So that at the end of the day, this is coming down to beware of any moment when you're trying to accomplish this in your own strength, in your own ability, in your own smartness, or whatever it is. You cannot do it. But you can put to death what is earthly in you by the Spirit of God that dwells in you because of Christ grabbing you out of the domain of darkness, transferring you to the kingdom of the beloved Son. And in that kingdom of the beloved Son, He is your new self. He is your new identity. And that new identity has all authority and power to put the old identity to death every single day and to then live out that new identity as we'll see next week. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for what you do. God, we know that fighting sin is probably one of the most frustrating things that we deal with on a daily basis. We hate, we hate that we deal with it. But we have grace and we have mercy at our disposal to be able to deal with it. And we have relief in knowing that you, that you are faithful and that you are just to forgive us of our sins every single day and to cleanse us of our unrighteousness. All you simply ask of us is to confess. And to confess is simply just to posture our lives by coming to you at your feet and saying, we are sinners. We have sinned against you and only you. And we're helpless and hopeless to fix this ourselves. And we need your help. We need your spirit. Lord, put to death what is earthly in us. Help us fix our minds on you. Help us run with your son, Jesus. Thank you, Lord. Amen. Thank you for listening to a sermon from the District Church. For more information about us, please visit www.thedistrict.church. Additionally, if any of our sermons have brought encouragement to you, would you please let us know by emailing us at info at